For over 10 years, we've been bringing you killer metal music and frank discussions about heavy metal. Wait, who the hell is Frank? You are tuned into MSR Cast, brought to you by Mainstream Resistance and Metal Injection. Here are your hosts, Kerry the Metal Geek and Sean the Metal Pigeon. Keep it metal. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 170 of MSR Cast, your heavy metal audio zine, brought to you by MetalGeeks.net and MetalInjection.net. I am one of your hosts, I am Carrie G. We bring you a very, very special episode that I had a lot of fun doing. Um, basically, Comic Palooza was here in Houston, Texas last weekend, and if you don't know what that is, think of it as uh, like San Diego Comic Con but here in Houston. And there was a wide variety of, of, of guests, celebrities there this year, everybody ranging from, like, say, the Fonz to, let's say, cast members from Gossam and S.H.I.E.L.D. and, let's say, maybe Stan Lee and Rudy Sarzo, Marky Ramone, yes, Guar was even there, and David Ellison, bass player extraordinaire from... Megadeth. He was such a nice guy. I got his got him to sign the book and um and I had the extreme and utmost pleasure to moderate his panel on Sunday afternoon. We spent almost an hour just just talking about Megadeth and what's coming up and how he got into the band and talked about the book and just a lot of really cool things. So I want to bring you that whole Q&A panel in its entirety, moderated by moi. And uh, guess what? We'll just get into it and keep it metal. Don't forget to visit us at metalinjection.net as well as metalgeeks.net. You can find us as well on iTunes. Search for that MSR cast. You can find us there. You can leave a review, give us a five stars, all that good stuff. That's a really w- the best way to help build up the legions of MSR cast metal fans out there. Let's see. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and on Facey space and Facebook, all those good places. So, uh, with no further ado, here is the Q and a panel with David Ellison. See you next time. And to comic Palooza, I have the pleasure to introduce Mr. David Ellison from Megadez. Everybody clap. How are you doing today? Excellent. How's your How's your weekend been? It's been great. I uh, got in, I guess, Friday night. So yesterday was my first day, and today was. Uh, it's funny. It started out pretty calm. You could tell everybody that the city was hungover yeah. after uh, a day yesterday. The game said like the the game, and then slash laying waste to the House of Blues and everything else going on. So it definitely felt like a rock and roll kind of night last night. So let's talk about your book first. Um, this just came out last year, My Life with Death. I've read it. Have you guys read it? All right. I'm told it's a good read. It is a good read. <laughs> so what made you decide to, to put your life into words like this? You know, these kind of books, these uh, rock and roll autobiographies started to become kind of a trend, I guess, probably about five years ago. Actually, I think Slash was one of the first people mm-hmm. that did one, ironically. And um, and then it's, it just became kind of in vogue. And I, you know, I never quite honestly envisioned myself doing one. 
Um, and my co-author, Joel MacGyver, is a friend of mine. He's the editor of Bass Guitar Magazine over in London and uh, is a bass player. He's interviewed me a lot over the years uh, regarding my, my bass work and signature products that I've had out over the years. So he's very well steeped in the Megadeth history. And um, five years ago, I guess 2010, um, I was away from Megadeth for a couple years and then I came back in 2010 and that was when we did the 25th anniversary Rust in Peace tour. Um, and I was only supposed to be for a month, by the way. Right. And then it turned into an entire world tour. I, saw, um, I think I saw that tour twice. Yes, yeah. yeah. And then funny, because right around that same time, uh, Metallica had reached out to us about doing the Big Four, which was Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, and Anthrax. And so we actually chose to play pretty much that Rust in Peace uh, set on those, on those shows. But um, Dave Mustaine was, had just... Uh, had written his book and it was just ready to release and that's when Joel said man the two of you guys because you're the founders of Megadeth Dave and Dave you're like the bookends at the at the end of the story of Megadeth you know so you two are uh, you know two guys named Dave are so much the same yet so different that, that he just said he really urged me he said man I think now is the time for you to write a book because it would really you'll complement Dave's book well and I think you'll, uh, your fans would want to hear, you know, you being the other guy who was there, especially from the early days in the beginning. Yeah, the early days in the beginning was, it was, it was very informative. So what has the, the feedback from your fans been for the book? You know, it's been great. Um, it, it's, you know, people have said it's a, it's a quick read, which is great, because I have a musician mind, and I don't like reading long, thick books, you know. So I like to get through things quickly, and... Uh, I've read a handful of these books, and um, uh, you know, there's a similarity, of course, kind of like you know the VH1 behind the music specials. All had this similarity where you know, band rides struggles, rise to the top. Right when they have it all, they crash and burn. And out of the ashes is born this sort of heartfelt story, you know. And the first thing I said to Joel, I said, look, I quit taking drugs and drinking like 25 years ago, you know, when I was in 1990. So it's like, I've got kind of a, a squeaky clean, I'm married, I've got kids. I mean, on the stage, you know, I'm a rock and roll star, but behind the scenes, like all the tragedy and all the bad stuff has been gone for many years. I said, what am I going to write a book about? Because usually that's what most of these books look like to me, is that there is this hardship and drug addiction and these things. And while... I did have that early on in my career, just if for no other reason, being around it and partaking in it, and it's got, it did get its hooks into me, you know, for a few years. But those were things from many years ago. And so as I started, you know, Joel, the process of writing these books usually is, you know, the co-writer, and the reason there's a co-writer is to give a little bit of perspective. Uh, he interviewed me over the course of about six months. and. Um, uh, once a week, usually we'd get on Skype, um, and he would interview me for about an hour, and he knew very methodically how to put the pieces of the Megadeth story together, as well as the pieces of my life into the book. And, um, and uh, so he asked all the right questions, you know, and uh, uh, I really, you know, I wasn't afraid to talk about anything because everything was, you know, my life's pretty much an open book. And, uh, you know, that's one thing about me and Dave, I think, in Megadeth is that we have been very transparent and very open about uh, the things in our lives. And I think it's the thing our, our fans and metal fans like, 
Um, you know, when I was growing up as a KISS fan, uh, everything was glitter and glitz and showbiz and the people on the stage weren't the same as the people off the stage. It was very, you know, different. They were the gods and we were the mortals, you know. But with our genre, it was very much not like that. We were sort of the anti-rock star, rock star movement. Um, and it very much, I think, our generation of Anthrax, Metallica, Megadeth, uh, we were probably the first generation who, at our age group, we owned both Black Sabbath and Sex Pistols records. You know, we liked metal and punk rock. <clears throat> and I think that um, is something that, that, you know, there was a, a transparency, the punk rock, the, how real that was, was always a part of our thing, you know, and dressing, like, you, you know, oftentimes you couldn't tell who was, a, who was a punter and who was a musician because everybody looked the same. And, um, and that's, I think, is, is that I think needed to come through in this book is that, uh, you know, while I've lived a life on, on the stage, uh, my life off the stage really probably doesn't look much different than most of our fans. I like how you, you said it, it was, you've, it's very transparent. You, after reading the book, you feel closer to the band mm -hmm. and you feel closer to yourself as a musician and as a person. Cool. Really knowing your, the way your inner mind works. You know, there's a thing, I think, with, uh, with our... Um, the way we were sort of educated as musicians in our genre, um, because most of us didn't go to school to become musicians. Um, you know, I mean, for me, when I was 18, I had spent several years in a high school jazz band. I went into jazz music. I grew up on a farm in Minnesota, right? So it's like literally a town of 3,000 people, and I was like one of maybe one and a half bass players in the entire area, right? The other half guy played guitar and bass, you know? Um, but I was a dedicated bass player. And there just weren't many musicians around. And so we really learned from each other. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, your, your buddies, um, you know, my friend Greg, who I saw, you know, he was, you know, he had a Kiss t-shirt on, and I like Kiss. I'm like, dude, you like Kiss? Let's form a band. And, you know, I mean, that was our musical upbringing. And we learned a lot from watching TV before him before MTV. There's like um, you know Don Kirshner's rock concert and Midnight Special and these kind of shows that were on TV. And that was how we you know we learned what they wore, how they wore their guitars, how they played, paid attention to their picking hand and different techniques and stuff. So we really just kind of picked it up through records and watching it on TV and just getting in a room with each other playing. And um, by the time I moved to Los Angeles at age 18, I was thinking about, as a backup plan, because your parents always want to know you have a backup plan, right? Right. The truth of it is, I never had a backup plan. But the backup plan I told my parents is, well, maybe I'll go to the school out in Los Angeles called the Musicians Institute. And they had the Bass Institute, the Percussion Institute, and the Guitar Institute. And that was kind of the, well, if I don't get in a band over the summer, I'll go to school in the fall. And fortunately, I moved out to L.A., and literally within five days, I met Dave Mustaine, who was about two months out of his Metallica gig at that point. And we hooked up, and that, within a couple of weeks, we birthed Megadeth. And um, so the good news is I didn't have to go to school. <laughs> it's a very quick thing, when, once you met Dave, and, you know, I guess... You guys are both named Dave, so your nickname came around all Junior. Yeah, junior, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we talked about, I was, you know, our band was not one of just four guys, five guys randomly just getting in a room and jamming. Um, Dave was starting to write his first post-Metallica music. The very first song was a song called Megadeth. 
and uh, it didn't end up on a record until our third album, So Far So Good So What, and it's got me titled Set the World Afire. But that was the very first song that uh, Dave had written the lyrics um, from a, and this was the 80s, early 80s, and the nuclear disarmament was a huge political hot button, to, you know, hot you know, button topic. And, uh, um, and that was where Megadeth came from. Megadeth is that the word actually means uh, body count in the amounts of millions after a nuclear fallout. So like two Megadeth would be two million, five Megadeth would be five million. So that's where the name came from. I didn't know there was math involved. <laughs> and it's funny that uh, um, we went and we talked about everything, like what we're going to wear, bullet belts, certain types of clothes. Dave and I were both playing BC Rich guitars. And, uh, you know, so everything we talked about, in fact, at one point we were talking about the amps were going to come up, the marshals were going to come up out of the stage, you know, kind of one at a time. And we were very bummed when we went and saw Motley Crue on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour. And their amps came up one marshal at a time. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> took our shtick, you know. But uh, right. but anyway, we went through uh, every single thing with it. And of course, our names is like when they came that moment. Well, you're Dave, and I'm Dave. And he was a little more known than I was because you know his Metallica work and um and dave was starting to become pretty popular in the metal underground and, and so at one point my middle name is warren so he says well should we call you war you know he's war nah war is too poser we can't do that you know so anyway we went through all these things and finally the guy who actually drew the very first megadeth uh artwork um on that that's uh, for the killing is my business record um he one day we're in a grocery store and he like called me junior for something he goes what do you like junior you know from the farm you know and dave is cracking up and i'm like you pricks you know it became my name so that became my uh my my nickname for a few years so from when the band started how did you envision getting to this level in your career you know Megadeth is one of these bands that, as soon as I met Dave, and, and ironically, my friend Greg, who was my KISS fan buddy, we moved out to L.A. together, uh, and we were in the room together, and he was the rhythm guitar player, technically, a, a, a co-founder, actually, of Megadeth. Um, we were in the room together, um, we had a drummer named Dijon Carruthers, and his dad was a fairly known actor, um, in Hollywood, and um, we were done some rehearsals, and you could feel that Megadeth was going to be a big band. You could just tell, um, and it did. You could tell it wasn't going to be an overnight sensation, but it's sort of like the vision. I think Dave's ability to sell you on the vision, uh, and that's, that's a big part of it. You know, to just have a great idea or a great song but not be able to get up on that stage and convince everybody in the audience how great this is. If you can't do that, it's not gonna be great and it's not gonna be huge. And I've been in a lot of bands over the years, both before Megadeth and even during Megadeth, that great guys, great musicians, great songs we wrote, but you could just tell it's never gonna really get off the stage in a big way that people are gonna receive it. And that, you know, that's a real, I'm, I'm glad to have had the experience in Megadeth with that, you know, because it's, uh, that really is kind of the deciding factor right. of how much you should continue to put into that band. And when you came back, you said in 2010, it was just 
everybody was just excited for that. It was a big sigh of relief. He's back. It's the original band now. Right, right. Yeah, it really is because Dave and I really are, well, you know, we're the founders. And I, I guess over the years, I started to really appreciate what that means, you know. And I grew up a rock. I think we're all fans first, right? Of music, right? Whatever, right? Yeah. <laughs> And, and even as a guy who's, you know, had a successful music career, uh, you, just for me, man, I don't ever want to lose being a fan. Because it's like, I see your Rush t-shirt, and I'm like, dude, awesome. I mean, you know, all the world's a stage was my, you know, and Kiss Alive, and, you know, these, these records that, you know, just over the years I've become fans of, and, 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 and sometimes in several genres, Al Miola maybe in fusion music or something, but, you know, there's these records that change your life. And, um, and you remember that moment it came into your life and changed your life. And those are, you know, those are things that, I mean, look, it's why we're all here. You know, whether we're, you know, we came in as a fan or we came in as a celebrity or however we came in here, we came in here because, I mean, in between me signing autographs, I'm going over to the soup Nazi getting a ladle signed. I'm like, dude, this guy's awesome, you know? And, um, and I think that's the beauty of these kind of events, you know, is that, uh, oh, there's the special order. Thank you. Two shots of espresso. Thank you. Awesome. Two shots of espresso and a nice coffee. So. It's been a long day. So. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the... Um, thank you, by the way. Um, that, uh, you know, being a fan, first and foremost, is, is, I think, the thing that always is the driving force. Right. You know, oh, yeah. And, and keeps, us, keeps us all going. No, so let's talk about that. What did you geek out on during this convention? What did I learn? What did you geek out on the most? The soup Nazi, for sure. But, I mean, the soup Nazi is awesome. He's pretty, that guy's metal all the way. Um, also, Jeremy Renner. Um, you know, he's, it's funny, he and uh, um, probably Scarlett Johansson, you know, their characters are probably, they're funny. They're a couple of my favorite of, of the recent Avengers. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it's funny. I was writing an album. You guys know Alex Skolnick? Right, from oh, yeah. Testament, right? So he and I are buddies, and we actually have a new album that we worked on that's going to come out later this year. And I was in, we were at Mike Portnoy's house um, in Pennsylvania writing the record, and I literally booked a one way ticket for this writing session. And, and they, kept, they kept asking me, I'd been there for about four days, and they're like, So, like, when is your flight going home? And I said, honestly, I didn't book a return ticket. I booked a one-way ticket to basically to nowhere, you know? So I drive to the airport, and I'm at the Philadelphia airport, and, and out of nowhere, Alex calls me. I couldn't figure out which flight to take to get home. It just wasn't, like, it wasn't clear, you know? Alex calls, goes, dude, can you come back into the city? We got, I got a call from Vice Media. We're going to play this party, and there's going to be, like, Jonah Hill, and da-da-da. And he said, Scarlett Johansson. He said, dude, I'm there. <laughs> play for free as long as she's there right so let's talk about that band with Portnoy and Skolnick what is it like yes um, well let me tell my Scarlett Johansson story first we'll get to the other band later so anyway we go to the party and you know and again I'm a fanboy moment right and uh, because I know Scarlett's a little rocker chick and she's cool and all that so you know I just want to like have my picture taken with her you know just my my fanboy moment you know but um, it's so it's it's kind of funny because I'm a fan. Like the Lucy movie is the one of hers mm-hmm. that, I'm, that I'm really the fan of. And um, but and, and when I was in Australia about a month ago, I was doing a spoken word tour, and there's this great movie that Jeremy Renner was in, uh, where he I forgot what he even told me yesterday what the name of it was, and I forgot I forgot because I didn't 
was, you know, I had never seen it, but it was like he blew the whistle. He worked for the San Jose Mercury News, and he was like, uh, he blew this story. Apparently, it's a true story. It was like an expose about crack coming into the government was letting crack into the, you know, USA. It was back in like the 80s or something. I mean, he was awesome in it. So he was the other guy I was really excited to meet, and you know, him and Scarlett are kind of my little. They're my fanboy. I've know, heard he's moments. a metalhead. So what's that? I've heard he's a metalhead. Exactly. I actually took a book over to him. Yeah. I, I actually kind of popped into his line. <laughs> I'd probably get arrested by the Comic Palooza police if they knew I did this. But I was like, uh, I was like, you know, he had a break for one minute, and I went in and I go, do it. I'm David from Megadeth, and I heard you're a metalhead, and I want to give you a copy of my book, you know. So and it was kind of more just like, you know, the two metalheads bonding. That's right. So he was he was cool. I budged my way in for a minute, you know. So, but um, it was fun just because if you know other people are. You know our uh, our metalheads and stuff. It's it's the thing that kind of you know binds us together. It's a it's a very bonding thing when two people are in the metal. It's like you're all, you're automatically bros. It's it's totally. strange. Yeah, exactly. And there's someone else uh, downstairs, um, uh, Donald from Gotham, I believe. Right? He was that was uh, I think it was his name, right? And he was down in the in the catering area, and I I, I went in and I just said, hey, I hear you know you're a metalhead. I mean the, the you know time stands still for a minute, and he's like telling me how he was a road manager for the Lemonheads, and oh, wow. I mean this whole backstory you know of, of things, and, and he goes, you know, before I became an actor, I was a tour man, I was a road manager of bands, and you know, and it's like, dude, you are you are you are a metalhead, you know, so. It's, it's funny when you're into, uh, and probably all of us here, the reason we're all probably kind of hanging here is because we're into rock and roll and especially hard rock and metal and stuff like that. And it's, you know, I call it the black t-shirt culture. You know? right. right? You have to wear black, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So let's talk about, let's go back to the, uh, the Portnoy and Skolnick yes. band. What yeah. is that going to be like? Okay, so we have this thing, we actually just put a press release out last week called Metal Allegiance. And uh, we have a record that will be coming out this fall. In fact, in a couple weeks, another press release of more of the details that are going to come out. But <clears throat> Nuclear Blast Records, which mm -hmm. is a total metal label, um, fell in love with it, loved it, signed it. And it was um, a few years ago, we started a thing called Metal Masters. And what it was, it started with me and Frank Bello from Anthrax doing these dueling uh, bass clinics together yes. during the Big Four shows. And the founder, the guy who was helping us with that, uh, my friend Mark from uh, Harky Bass Amplifiers, he said, he goes, man, around the big four, I want to do something, and I want to get you and Bello and Charlie Benante from Anthrax and Mike Portnoy, and we're going to call it Metal Masters, and it's going to be kind of a half clinic, half concert. And we did the first one before uh, the big four show out in Indio. Um, that would have been 2011, I guess, right? And, um, and so anyway, the concept kept going. And um, then last year, uh, Megadeth, uh, we, we pulled off our performance on the first ever uh, Motorhead Motorboat Cruise. Did anybody go on that by any chance? It, it was awesome. Apparently, it ranks number one as the most booze ever sold on the right. rock cruise. So. Imagine. Again, metalheads, right? right? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, that's carnival. There's another, there's 
another heavy metal cruise. It's called 70,000 Tons of Metal. Right. The first tour ever. They ran, ran out of Ran out of booze. See, that's how it goes. I know. Exactly. That's why I have to drink coffee, you know? I punched my drink ticket out early, 25 years ago. But, uh, yeah, exactly. So these metal cruises, you know, they're... Yeah, but it was. I think they sold the most booze ever on, like, a carnival cruise ever, you know? Um, so anyway, Megadeth uh, did not do the, do the show. The promoter called me and they said, Hey, man, I've got this thing. We were going to launch it in um, this last year of January uh, at the Anaheim... Uh, House of Blues for the Winter Nam convention, which is basically our musician version of Comic Palooza. Yes. Basically, it's what it is. And um, and I said, listen, everybody's going to be there. If you let us have a couple of time slots, we can probably fill the Megadeth performance time with this thing called Metal Allegiance. And so we did. And um, and it was it was the hit of the boat. It was just awesome because it's really it's an all star collective with Phil and Salmo and Gary Holt and. And um, me and Alex Skolnick and Portnoy and John Tempesta, a couple of the Motorhead guys jumped in. So anyway, it's just this big all-star collective. And again, it's, it's, we're fans of music playing music we were fans of. Everything from Kiss to Maiden to um, that kind of stuff. In fact, we just did uh, the Shiprock Cruise um, back in February. And we played side, we played the entire Van Halen, the first Van Halen album, top to bottom. Oh, wow. Just because we're like fans, we're like <laughs> geeking out about Van Halen, you know? And what was awesome is, is Wolfgang Van Halen, Eddie's son, was on the boat playing bass for Mike, uh, Mark Tremonti. Mm. So we said, Wolfie, you got to come up and, you know, play bass and sing background harmonies, you know? We're in the, we're in the chapel of the boat learning the harmonies for Running With The Devil. I mean, that's how metal this was, right? So, <laughs> cool moments, I think. Right? Yeah. So, besides Megadeth, you had some time off, and you, you've been in other bands that you, like, let's talk about some of those, Killing Machine, F5. Sure. Um, Altitudes and Attitudes, which is yeah. with Frank Bella, which is a great album. Yes. Well, we'll, we'll start, I guess, at the beginning. So, but in 2002, Megadeth actually formally disbanded. Dave had, had pulled back from the band. And, you know, here I am about almost, you know, 20 years into Megadeth's history, and we're really kind of starting to turn some corners, because the 90s were rough for thrash metal. I mean, it was brutal. I mean, new metal, Seattle. I mean, you know, the Seattle thing changed the course. And it's not the Seattle music and Nirvana's fault. People want to hate a band. They want, oh, we hate Nirvana. It's not Nirvana's fault. It's the frickin' music industry goofballs who have no creativity and no imagination, and they just, they're like lemmings off a cliff. They just follow, oh, Nirvana's cool, we'll sign 10 more Nirvanas right. to our record labels. So those are the things that, that, that kill, you know, the creativity inside the music business. The creativity never stopped. The engine, you know, the, the sort of, um, I don't know, innovation of the music industry is what, is what stopped all of that. And so we, Megadeth, survived uh, the the 90s, you know, Slayer went from playing arenas to playing theaters. I mean, Anthrax was playing clubs. I mean, it was tough times, you know. But the truth of it is, is you know, there's always been heavy metal fans, and so as the trendy stuff pushes through, you know, out the other side was still well, the big four for sure, and out of that also some other cool bands like Lamb of God and other bands. You know, Pantera went away, unfortunately, and Lamb of God just kind of cruised right in, you know, and so they're now kind of the, the reigning champions of that. So when Megadeth broke up, the first thing I said, I am never, ever, ever putting another band together ever again. 
Um, because I realized, number one, how fortunate I was to be able to be in a group like Megadeth and just that moment of time. And again, when I went, the, just you could feel in the room in 1983 that Megadeth was going to be a big band. So here I am in 2002 just going, I, I can't do it. I don't have it in me to do it, you know. And But around me, about a year later, a group of guys in Phoenix um, had asked me to play on a couple things with them. And I was... I am a bass player, and I was like, all right, look, I'll get together and I'll play bass and hang out. And, we'll. and it, it was like, we wrote a handful of tunes, and I had that feeling back of being 15 with my buddies, wanting to hurry up and put the bass in the car and go jam and write songs. I, I got it back. I had that feeling again. And so that's how that group F5 started. And I told them, I said, who knows if we'll ever make a dollar doing this? Don't plan. We'll probably get famous because if nothing else, you're standing, you know, I was in Megadeth, so, you know, the press will pay attention to it, but don't plan on getting rich, you know, because, but, you know, but, uh, but we made some great music, a couple of records, and then that led to uh, Killing Machine, which funny, John Deddy, who's been playing in Slayer a bit over the years, and now just recently played with Anthrax, um, he was actually the drummer on the demos for that. And then I played in a group called Temple of Brutality that right. uh, some guys out of Florida, and that was Stet Holland from Wasp, who's just a, just a nut, man, just a fun guy. And so I just sort of landed in these different groups because uh, you guys seen that uh, Jim Carrey movie, Yes Man? Anybody seen that, right? Where he says no, and his world gets small, and finally he goes to that, you know, that self-help motivation conference and he starts saying yes to everything and next thing you know his life just opens up you know and and that's what uh, actually Alice Cooper had asked me to play bass for him mm. and uh, right after Megadeth ended because Alice had taken Megadeth out on the PCLs tour back in 1986 he's been a friend of the bands and he knew you know, he, he and I always got along well, and he's, you know, he, he was kind of him. He goes, wow, well, Ellison doesn't have a gig, let's call him. And to be honest with you, I kind of blew the gig because I didn't really know what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I mean, my identity was wrapped up in Megadeth. Um, my fans, our fans, certainly knew me as the guy in Megadeth. And I thought, God, is playing with Alice Cooper? Does that, does that make sense? I mean, what is that, you know? So... Um, yeah, it would have. It would have been cool. It would have been great. But to be honest with you, I was kind of, I didn't really know how to handle that. I'd never been a sideman musician ever through my entire career. Ever since I was 12 years old, I was the guy who put bands together. And, and even with Megadeth, I was a, you know, a founder and one of the guys who helped put it together and keep it together and, and really, you know, steer the ship. And, you know, with Dave, you know, I was, I was, you know, one of the guys. So here I am as this sort of lone wolf, you know, kind of bass player for hire guy. And I really didn't know how to handle it. So the next journey probably for the next seven, eight years of my life was putting more bands together. And then until my return back to Megadeth in 2010. Now, I know you guys are working on a new album, but you also have a new lineup now. Megadeth is no stranger to having lineup changes, but yeah. let's talk about the new lineup now. Sure. Well, uh, you know, so last year, um, you know, we, Megadeth went through a uh, management change and a few different things. And, and, you know, being a year off the road is a long time for, for, um, for a group. And not necessarily for the Megadeth name, but um, Sean Drover, our drummer, and Chris Broderick, our guitar player, you know, were inspired to write some songs together. They'd actually asked me to be part of it with them. Um, and uh, it didn't ever 
kind of feel at home to me. I mean, I didn't really want to leave Megadeth to go do it, it's, but I'm always up for doing some things on the side. One of the things you mentioned was Altitudes and Attitude, which is a side group I have with Frank Bello from Anthrax. And we've always been very clear, neither of us are leaving our bands to do this, and it's, musically it's even a little bit different. Um, um, but it's something that's fun for us to do while we're still, you know, both in Megadeth and Anthrax. But, um, you know, Sean and Chris made the decision to leave. Um, and, uh, and so, of course, that leaves us looking at what are we going to, you know, do. And if, now, the first thing fans said is, oh, my God, get Nick Menz and Marty Friedman back, <laughs> do the Rust and Peace reunion, blah, blah, blah. And i got to be honest with you, Dave was completely receptive to any and all options. Probably more than I've ever seen, absolutely more than I've ever seen him ever, ever. Um, so he is definitely should not ever be painted as a bad guy that that lineup did not happen. He was um, as open to it. Um, he called me. Uh, I was in South America, ironically, playing a show with Kiko, mm-hmm. our new guitar player. Um, on a Metal All-Stars tour. And um, it was Jeff Tate, myself, uh, Kiko's band, Angra, was one of the support acts. And Kiko came up and played with me and Jeff Tate on some songs. And, um, and I always thought, I would look at Kiko and I went, you know, if anything would ever happen, he might be a guy to keep his number just in case Megadeth ever needs a guitar player, right? <laughs> so it's kind of, again, the Yes Man movie, just say yes, go to South America. You know, why, I don't know. We'll figure it out, you know, and, you know, so again, here I go to down there, I play with Kiko, and six months later, he's in Megadeth, right? But, um, you know, so Dave called me, and he said, you know, what do you think about Nick Menza, and, you know, and I'm getting some, you know, some reports from some people I trust that we should consider maybe doing this, you know, this reunion, and, um, and I, you know, so we talked about it, and I've been friends with, I'm the one guy who's been friends with all the former Megadeth members, you know. And, um, and so I said, well, listen, I, I think we should at least try it, you know. I think we should give it a, you know, I said, before we do anything, though, let's get in a room with Nick, which we did, me and Dave and Nick, at Dave's studio in California. And I said, let's try it. I mean, first and foremost, let's be musicians and see if we can play the good together. And if we can play good together, let's see then if we even like each other. Because that's another big part of being in a group together, is hopefully you at least kind of, sort of, can stand each other, you know? And, uh, and so we did, and, and, and we just realized, it's like, you know, we had a lot of laughs, it was fun, um, but we, I think Dave and I felt right away that musically, yeah, we weren't convinced that it was the next chapter of Megadeth, you know? And to go back and just do a cash grab, it would be short-lived, and I think our fans, again, the transparency of the metal fans, they would know right away. And it's like, you know, you can never do things just for the money. You know, you can do things that make you money, but you can never do it just for the money when you're dealing with art and you're dealing with artistic things. You just can't do it. I mean, sequels of movies, right? How many of those have we seen? You know, and we know that there's, you know, a financial prize in that, but seldom are they ever as good as the first one. It's just hard to bring those things together, yet somehow in rock bands, people think, just call the guys up and get them together and it'll be great, like it was in 1992. Yeah, you know. But people move on and people's playing styles change. Dave and I have been very blessed to play with really some of the best musicians in the world, both in metal and, and, and otherwise. 
And, um, you know, we, we had a meeting at NAMM in January where we sat down with Marty and Nick and our manager. And, um, and I got to be honest with you, Dave, again, was as uh, open ever as he could have ever been to having uh, a, a reunion and trying to make it work. And, and if anything, I was the bad cop of that. I let Dave be the good cop for a change, you know. As partners, I thought, you know, he always gets the bad rap. I'll, I'll be the guy, you know, kind of stirring the waters and I'll let him be the good guy. And, and you know, we gave it every possible opportunity for it to work. And it just, it just really... Dave and I walked into that meeting and said, yeah, I don't think this is going to happen, you know. And we just really had to be honest with ourselves and, pres and preserve the name Megadeth. And also, you know, Megadeth doesn't, our creative days are not over. I mean, we have still music in us. We're not just a nostalgia act to go play the hits of the glory days, you know. <clears throat> we have a lot of new music in us. So here we are with the, the new record. And uh, Chris Adler from Lamb of God played on it, played drums, who's a total badass. And, um, and you're, you know, Chris, you're going to hear Chris playing different on this new record than you will hear him in Lamb of God. It's actually been a really, I talked to Chris, I said, you know, this is going to be an opportunity for you to broaden your horizons and be more than just who everyone knows you doing the, the kind of your blast beats and your Lamb of God thing. So musically for him, I think it was a really good, you know, a great, a great season of, of, you know, maybe growing in some new directions with his drumming, which is great. And Kiko is really, I mean, I, I didn't realize, you know, back in November when I played with him, I knew he was good, but I mean, I didn't realize how great he is as a, not just a guitar player, but as a musician. I mean, this guy, you know, he'll walk in the room and go, that's a G sharp. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that note right there, you know, in the middle of those 85 notes, that's a G sharp. How did you, you know, me and Dave are like, we hate him, you know, he's, this guy's too good, you know, get him out of here, you know. So, no, but Kiko is just a fantastic, um, I, you know, and again, you wonder, we've played with some great musicians, you know what I mean, and Marty Friedman, there's a reason why people like him in Megadeth. I mean, he really brought a unique stamp to the sound. He changed the Megadeth sound in a way that really improved it. And I mean, I was sitting there going, how are we ever going to get a guy that's going to do something like that again? And I got to be honest with you, I think, I think Kiko is that guy. Rust in Peace, one of my top five albums of all time. So. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. So we have some time left. Want to um, answer the question? Sure. The yeah, yeah. Let's do some. Uh, is Chris Adler being on drums and the album for a future tour most likely to be out? Yeah. Are you going to get a stand-in or is Chris going to be with you? Well, this is the question of the day now. Yeah. Okay, so now that we've made this record, that's pretty off the hook, man. Um, you know, and I'll say this, you know, uh, it's funny, this is a strange record. I played bass first before any other instruments were laid down. I think probably for the first time ever in the history of recorded music has the bass player been the first guy to record. And... Uh, you know, it's funny because, you know, Chris is such a fan of Megadeth. You know, Chris playing with Megadeth would be like me joining KISS. I mean, this we're like his favorite band ever, the band that got him into music. I mean, he's so humbly appreciative of the opportunity and being, being you know, part of this. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, and, and so anyway, you know, as we've talked about doing shows coming up, you know, Chris is like, dude, I'll, I'll move anything I can anywhere to try to make it happen. I just want to, you know, play with me. No, look, he may play one show with us and go, that's it, I'm done. I don't ever want to do that again. So we'll, we'll, we'll find out as it's coming up. But yeah, the goal is Chris would like to play with us as much as possible. And uh, we, 
are still looking to where's the best time to release this new record. So um, as we're looking at some tour dates coming up, they're not necessarily predicated on the new album being out. Um, and I guess it's kind of a cool thing with Megadeth is we can play shows and not necessarily have to have a new album to go to go play, you know, play those. So. You, when you guys did a couple of years ago, had the fans choose the set list, which was really right. great. Does well, it's weird. You, about, nervous? What's weird about the fans choosing the set list is they always want to hear The Conjuring, number one, right? <laughs> Track two, P cells, side A. And we've played that song. The reason, there's a reason we take songs out of the set list is because they're great tunes on a record. But you play them in a live setting and they, they kind of go like this and then they just go flat. You know, and, and for us as performers, because our music is very interactive, you know, very much so, and always has been from day one, even before we made records and we played songs before we recorded them, you could just get a pulse on songs. And not that every song has to be slamming and everything's got to be just full on a pogo fest at a festival, but it's nice when it works really well between the band and the audience. And, and there's just certain tunes you know, track seven, side B, album three, you know, the, that one that four fans just want to hear no matter what, you know. You know, there's a reason we quit playing that song live, because for whatever reason, it just wasn't working in the flow of the set, you know. And, um, you know, maybe with having a guy like Chris around, you know, who will fanboy on us and go, dude, we need to play liar, hook and mouth, you know, whatever. There'll be some tune that he's going to want to hear. Into the lungs of hell, man, come on, you know. <laughs> Maybe we'll pull these things back into the set list, you know, just for a time. And, you know, the thing, I guess, too, about touring is that, you know, more and more, when you play big festival shows, you kind of play your greatest hits. You play sort of the best songs that fit in a massive, kind of a mass appeal setting. But as we're, you know, now in this different phase, we're like, Killing Is My Business has become this cult classic. Um, you know, in fact, the first album, Killing Is My Business, is probably the number one most requested record that I see our fans wanting. And it's the smallest selling. It was the very first one on a little independent label. Um, but for the real diehard fans who have been with us on the journey for the last 30 years, I mean, that's the one they're like, please, would you play some songs off that record? So I, I see that record being the one that will probably start getting some attention, even if it's just, you know, one night in Houston playing The Killing Is My Business record or something like that, you know? So with such a large catalog, how do you go through your, your songs and determine what's going to be played on each tour? Well, you know, usually it's, you know, sometimes it's a group consensus. You, again, we kind of have this, this staple of, you know, Hangar 18, Holy War, Symphony of Destruction, Peace, Cells, Wake Up Dead. There's, there's a staple. There's probably a dozen of them that are just kind of the classics that... It almost wouldn't be a Megadeth show if we didn't play them, so we keep them in there. And then um, we go by, you know, we usually let the order kind of be determined by Dave for his voice. You know, he's like, dude, if I sing Skin on My Teeth and track, you know, song number two, I'm going to broach my throat. It's a really high song, you know, and, and so we always defer to him really more for vocal, you know, to let him kind of pick the pacing for vocal purposes. Um, uh, but other than that, you know, it's, it's a matter of it flowing, you know, it's got to rock and keep, you know, get the energy up and then you can kind of pull it. It's like when you listen to a record, you know, it, 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 it takes you up and then you can pull it back and then you can have, you know, foreclosure of a dream can be, you know, track three or four, but then you ramp it up and you hit it again. And so, you know, a set list, we've always done Megadeth music uh, as if it were a soundtrack to a movie. 
you know, and even the best slasher flick isn't just all slashing and chainsaws and killing all the time. You know, there has to be that tender moment. You got to get the love story in before the next <laughs> slashing, right? So that's how even the Megadeth songs are like that. We, 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 in my darkest hour, a lot of these tunes, we view them very much almost like if, if, if you were watching uh, a silver screen and this music was, was the bed track, that it would be uh, a sonic journey, just like we, you know, as you would as you're watching a film. Is there that one song in your catalog that you guys have to play every show and you're just like, okay, I don't want to play this song tonight? I mean, you know, I think the have to, have to, have to songs are always Holy Wars, um, you know, Symphony of Destruction, mm-hmm. Peace Cells, and then there's, you know, Wake Up Dead is a you better or else, you know, kind of. <laughs> there's a few of those. <laughs> and, well, you, uh, you will. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's, there's um, and then there's some other tunes, you know, songs like Trust and things like that. You know, even a Tulemon, which is more of a balladish kind of tune. We don't have to play that every night, but it's, fans have come to expect, especially overseas in Europe, you know, because in Europe, you know, that, that French... Uh, you know, lyric in that tune translates into Italy and it translates into um, the Spanish-speaking culture, you know. So those kind of lyrics uh, really transcend, and especially in South America. I mean, we'll go down there and play big arenas and stadiums and stuff like that. And I mean, a Tulamon is just, I mean, we can just take our guitars off for like five right. minutes and let the audience sing the song. Because it, again, that Latin America thing, they, you know, that, that language and those lyrics really speak to them as a culture. Anybody else have a question they would like to ask? Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, okay, so do you know King Don Stormer, Matt Thompson? Uh, I don't know him. I heard about him. T- the Guar guys were talking about him today. Yes. yes. Okay, yeah. So I'm friends with him too. I think he's an amazing drummer. He's fabulous. And he's available. Trying to get him a job? He's the guy, you think, right? He's because he is so He's the guy? He's the guy. And he can do all of Chris Adler's stuff, even though I haven't heard it yet. Okay. He can do all of Chris Adler's stuff. I will keep that in mind. All right. All right, uh, that's okay. Suggestion taken. This come from drummers. Are you his agent, by the way? Yeah, right. Okay. okay. Uh, uh, he's a friend of mine from college. Okay. Uh, went to the same college as him, and he plays with Shaolin Death Squad with Aaron Denton, who is also amazing. If you guys like Megadeth, check out Shaolin Death Squad. Okay. And, uh, yeah, no, just friends. Okay. Well taken. I get this, I get stuff on Facebook all the time. Yeah. Dude, check out this drummer from Bogota. Check out this yeah. guy from here and this guy from there. And then there are people, but you know, bands members leave bands, big bands, you know, pretty notable sized bands. And and I can kind of tell right away when I watch them. I'm like, mm, good player. Saw him playing that band. Awesome. Mm, maybe not the right fit in Megadeth, you know. And then you see other people. You're like, wow, this this guy could totally. This guy could be pretty rocking. So maybe he's that guy. I I feel strongly that he could. <laughs> okay. Got awesome. All right. Cool. Well, then this trip was worth coming down to Houston for yeah. right? if we get a drummer out of the game. <laughs> Any questions? Thank you. Yeah, you said that uh, you thought when you got with the day Yep. What, what about what about working with them made you think that? You know, Dave casts a pretty big shadow. You know, <clears throat> I mean, he's a big figure, and there are certain people when they walk in the room, the room changes. You know, Gene Simmons is one of those guys. Ted Nugent's one of those guys. I mean, there's just guys like that. David Lee Roth. 
you know, um, and Dave is one of those guys, you know, that when he's in the room, you can sense his presence, you know, and I think maybe that had a lot to do with it because you're, you know, again, I was an 18 year old kid, just moved to Hollywood, um, certainly grew up, again, a Kiss fan, a Megadeth fan, started watching Motley Crue take off, Ozzy, of course, was getting his musicians, Rudy had just played with them, unfortunately, Randy had just passed away. Um, but, you know, Ozzy was getting his musicians out of the L.A. gene pool. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you can see, even as, as I just got there and, you know, you drive down the Sunset Strip and everybody looks like they're in Motley Crue, but they're not in Motley Crue, you know. <laughs> and, you know, to Motley Crue's credit, there's a reason they're as grand as they are is because, I mean, those are four very big personalities, you know. And he started to, what really hit me, is it isn't just your abilities and your look, it's your charisma. You know, charisma is what sells movies and comic books and characters and rock stars and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, Dave as our leader is that guy. I mean, he's got a very big charisma. And uh, King Diamond, you know, there's there's a reason these these guys are the, you know, the lead focal point of these bands. and. Um, it's funny, Jimmy DeGrasso's girlfriend said one time she would stand in front of house at the soundboard and watch us, and she goes, God, I watch Dave on stage, and when he's on stage, he becomes this other guy. He's absolutely fearless, you know? And there were many times being on stage in the early days when we'd go up and play San Francisco, and, and Dave, when I first meet, so I meet Dave, right? The first thing he says, we're never playing any clubs in L.A. You know, and here I'm going, so I'm hearing about you know, Van Halen at the Starwood and the Whiskey and all these notorious clubs. I mean, he's like crushing my dream, you know, of ever playing any clubs. And uh, he said, well, I played with Metallica, you know, we opened for Saxon at the Whiskey and never again, I'll never play another club. now." And, you know, and truthfully, we didn't. Um, we went out to, out in the valley, there's a club called um, um, the Country Club, which was more of a big concert venue. It wasn't really a club and we played there a lot. But Dave's like, we're going to go to the Bay Area, going to go up to San Francisco, that's where the thrash scene is at. And, you know, when we got up there, man, I mean, you know, he was, he was uh, you know, idolized. And, and it was, and it was, and of course they looked to me going, okay, well, Dave was in Metallica with Cliff Burton, and Cliff was great. If you've chosen David Ellison as your bass player, then we assume he's great. Like, show us what you got. You know, so um, I really understood how Cliff played. I understood his his note choices, kind of some of his, uh, the arpeggios and some of his, he had studied some classical music, so I got it. And um, I had studied a little bit of that as well as some jazz and things like that. So this was his chance for me to really kind of have this clean slate of creating an entire new style of bass playing, which is what Dave and I work really hard on with everything, the drumming, the guitar playing, the rhythm guitar playing, the bass playing. Every facet of the band was, was sort of, let's create a new genre of each one of these instruments. And I think that part of that was, was what felt like, wow, this is, you know, this, this, could, this is like an, a chance to reinvent and create an entirely new approach to every single instrument in the band as well as the sound of the band itself. Anybody else have a question? Yes, sir. Can you explain a little bit about the creative process, like how you collaborate? Is it music first? Is it lyrics first? How does it all come He's asking about the collaborative, sort of the creative process of, of Megadeth. And, you know, usually it starts with a riff. Yeah. The riff is king. Um, and, you know, it usually starts there. Sometimes there will be a lyric idea or a song title, um, and that'll sort of spearhead a lyric. But usually we write the music first, 
And um, it's, I've collaborated with Dave a lot on lyrics over the years, you know, like I'll write a lyric idea or a verse or maybe I'll have a chorus and I'll bring it into him. Other times he'll say, hey, I've got this, you know, this concept, here's what the concept is, you know, why don't you get to work on that and, and I'll kind of designate that tune for you to work on, you know, so that way we kind of all know what we're going to be working on. Um, and other times it'll be just like, man, I've got, you know, almost a, an entire song done. I'm needing a couple of lines to complete a thought. Um, so it could be any combination of those things. And sometimes Dave will just want to write a tune all by himself, you know. And it's better to, you know, I've, I've learned over the years working with a handful of writers. When someone, you know, when Picasso's creating something, you don't go in and go, well, dude, can I paint like a little brush and a rock in the corner? You know, no, get out of here, you know. So... So sometimes you let people create, you know, and do their thing. Um, conversely, this Metal Allegiance thing that me and Mike Portnoy and Alex Skolnick wrote, uh, this record, very collaborative on every song right from the gate. And again, that's because we have never worked together as a group before. And Mike became primarily the arranger. Me and Alex wrote most of the riffs. Uh, and our friend, another buddy, Mark, of our uh, friend Mark, he, he you know, the, we created the riffs, and Mark became, or Portnoy became the arranger. You know, and arranging is a huge thing. In Megadeth, Dave does most of the arranging because at the end of the day, he's thinking lyrically where, and sometimes, I gotta be honest with you, I'm going, how in the hell is he gonna say anything over this? <laughs> I mean, the riffs are complex, and they're very deep, and they're, they, you know, and you're just like, how can you put a, a vocal melody over that, you know? And somehow he comes up with something, and you know, I can't pry inside of his head to see, so I just have to wait until he gets on the mic and, you know, says, hey, let me go out and put a vocal idea down, and, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, I would have never thought that would go there, but <laughs> that sounds pretty good, you know, so, and sometimes even, you know, if I'm working, you know, if Dave and I are working on a lyric together, if he asks me to help on a, on a, on a lyric thing, you know, I have to wait for him to sort of lay out a you know, a, a phrase, you know, because when you're writing lyrics, you know, it's not only writing the words and trying to convey the thought, but you have, you're confined to, you know, how many syllables, da, 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 you know, does it rhyme, there's all kinds of little, and then again, with Megadeth, one of the things we're probably the hardest on ourselves with is, you know, now this will be our 15th record, we've played a lot of riffs and we've written a lot of words, we don't want to repeat ourselves. You know, I remember as a Ted Nugent fan, after like Double Live Gonzo and I think whatever the record, Scream Dream and a couple of these records that started coming out, Weekend Warrior and then Scream Dream, and it's like they started all sounding the same. And I remember even reading a, 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 an interview with Ted and they said, whose music do you listen to? And he goes, I only listen to my own music. Right. <laughs> and it was funny because it's very Ted, but sadly it all started to sound like kind of, you know, you know, kind of regurgitated stuff, and I don't even know if he noticed it, but, you know, I'm, I'll never forget that quote, you know, because it's like, I start listening to it, and sometimes I have to ramp up into Megadeth stuff, I'll go, I'll put on P-Cells again, and kind of get my head back into what we were doing at that time, so I'll do it almost to kind of do my homework, um, but, you know, it's dangerous to only listen to one thing, because you're very much start sounding you know, like that one thing. And I think, you know, for us, we want our, you know, our music to be compelling and we want our fans to be happy when they buy it and get their ass kicked and go, wow, that's freaking awesome. That was, that was a good 15 bucks I spent on that, you know, so. We're running out of time a little bit. We have time for one more question. 
Go ahead. Yes, sir. What's, uh, have you found any interesting bands that recently that have grabbed you? <clears throat> you know, the, um, I mean, as far as big bands go, uh, last year when we were on tour over in Europe, the Amana Marth thing was awesome. Yeah, right? Yeah. And it was, and was great. And they played on several big festivals with us, like Bakken and these big things. And it's like, man, that is freaking cool, you know? And they can fit a Viking ship on the stage. Yeah. Which is pretty rad, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, Sean Grover was a big fan of Gojira, so he'd always be, dude, check this song out, you know, and, and, um, and I remember Gojira when they were real small, supporting, like, Arch Enemy, and, you know, coming through the USA, playing, like, you know, not even, like, House of Blue sides venues, you yeah. know, and then they blew up to really be this big kind of festival-sized act over in Europe. Um, and then, you know, I'll, I always keep an ear out for just things, you know, fans will hand me CDs and, hey man, check my band out. And sometimes I get a stack of them at home and I'm like, oh man, you know, and then there's a time I'm just going, yeah, you know, what the hell, let me give it a listen. Let me, you know, and then so every once in a while, you know, you discover, I mean, that's how Annihilator was for me, you know, back in, I remember in like 1989, you know, I just put on the Annihilator record and, you know, me every day. Me and Nick Menza would drive to the rehearsals, writing the Rust and Peace album, listening to Annihilator, and uh, and yeah, just awesome. You know, and you, you used to get these minutes you're like, wow, this is rad. You know, so you know, and I think to just to support our genre and to support metal music, it's it's good to keep an open ear to it, and um, you know, and just try to, and it's inspiring to me. And sometimes you, you kind of go, whoa, man, and these young bucks are shredding pretty good here. You know, like. Don't rest on your laurels, you know. Just because you made Rust in Peace 25 years ago doesn't mean you get to coast now, you know. So <laughs> kind of kind of lights the fire under me, too, to make sure I keep practicing and keep keep working at it. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Any yeah, final, thank any you. Final yeah. Cool. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for listening to another fine podcast brought to you by MSR Productions. All rights reserved, blah, 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 blah. For reviews, archives of our podcasts, and all your other metal geekery needs, please visit metalgeeks.net.